0: We are in the book of Joshua. Today is part, part 15 of our journey through the book of Joshua. If you're here for the first time, there's a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces. I've said throughout this story... That beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this story is focused on one thing, and it's land. That's what Joshua's about. One word, land. Okay. Land. Land that has been promised to them. Land that they have been waiting to receive as an inheritance for centuries. They've been looking forward to this. Most people, when they think of Joshua, they think of Joshua and how he fought the battle of Jericho. They think of the battles and the military engagements, and certainly Joshua is comprised of such things. But what this story, the theme, is all about is God fulfilling His promises to the people to give them land that He had promised to them and to give them rest. Rest. Maybe some of you need rest. And yet the rest that we see here foreshadows the rest that Jesus gives to us all for any who come to him, all you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. Rest that, true rest that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did in conquering sin and death on the cross for us. And so today we will be traveling rather fast we have spent 14 sermons up to this point traveling through the first 11 chapters we are going to spend one sermon now traveling through the next 10 chapters i understand this is highly unusual given the expository verse by verse nature that we are certainly characterized but um this is kind of a a boring story today on the surface it is if you've at all glanced through like chapters 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 19 20 21 it's kind of boring on the surface it it reads in many ways like legal jargon it does right so so This tribe is going to get this land, and they're going to get this land from this tree over this hillside. This tribe, they're going to get a land and inheritance, like from Portico over to Capstone up until the creek bed, but no further than this. That's how it reads. Like every chapter, certainly on the surface, it's kind of dull. It is. But as boring as these chapters may appear, imagine for a moment that you were about to become an, the heir of a great fortune. Imagine that you were about to become the heir of a great fortune. It might be hard for some of you who have a massive amount of college debt, but, but try, okay? Try. When a team of lawyers shows up at your house to go over all the details, to go over all the particulars of this great fortune, my guess it wouldn't be at all boring to you. You would want to know every detail. You'd want to know every particular. Wait, is, can you say that again? You, imagine you asking the, the attorneys, what was that about a, a lake house and jet skis? And a yacht in, my, in Miami. Okay, that's great. And, a, and another a cabin in, in Colorado. Okay, that's what kind of sports car? No, you're not boring me. Keep going. I, I'm, just, yeah, I'm just processing all this. It would be like Christmas morning. And then you can begin to feel, perhaps, how this surface-level boring story very much is not for the people hearing it. It's like Christmas morning, but instead of waiting a year for it to come, they've been waiting for centuries for this day. It would have been such a joyous occasion for these people as God's promises, the fulfillment of everything he has said is about to come to its apex, is about to come to fruition. They're excited, okay? Surface to us looks kind of boring, but not to them, and it is in that mindset that I want us to enter into, to step into this ancient world, to feel as they may have felt. And so, I will be landing upon certain key verses. I will be summarizing the rest of them, like chapter 12. Chapter 12, there's two major summary statements. In chapter 12, verse 1 to 6, it's a summary statement of victories that occurred while being led by Moses. And then from verse 7 all the way to verse 24 of chapter 12, it's another series of summary statements of Israelite victories while under the command of Joshua. And then we come to Joshua chapter 13. And it says this Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. There remains. Yet very much land to possess. And that might sound and seem kind of peculiar because the general story that we've seen so far throughout the first 11 chapters seems like Israel has mopped the floor with their enemies. In fact, in chapter 10, the day in which the sun stood still, we see Israel having victories during their southern campaign. In chapter 11... Against Jabin in the northern alliance, we see Israel having victories in the north. And so the picture we've really had displayed to us is this total victory. And yet when we come to chapter 13, verse 1, we're reminded that there's still a lot to be done. There's still a lot of territory that remains to be taken. Territory that includes that of their Philistines, their neighbors in the south, the Phoenician coastland to the north, the northern mountainous territories of Lebanon, still yet to be taken. And then we come to verse 6. And here is the guidance that God gives, really in 6b. It says, I myself, God speaking here, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Joshua, you're an old guy, so here's your new assignment. I'm going to drive him out. Here's what you need to do. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance. So what you got to do. You've got to allot the land. You've got to divvy it up and give it to the tribes. Now, therefore, verse 7, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, if you are at all familiar with Israelite history, then the reference to the nine tribes and that half tribe of Manasseh might seem kind of peculiar, especially if you weren't here for earlier sermons, because you might be thinking, I'm pretty sure there's 12 tribes, but there's nine tribes and then some like half tribe of Manasseh there. So explain that. Do we have that map? Love that map. You can see right here a shot of Israel. And uh, going back to the time of Deuteronomy, under the command of Moses, Israel fought in this region right here. This is the Trans Jordan region that is on the other side of the Jordan, the area to the right to the east of the Jordan River. That was taken during the time of Moses, and that was allotted to the Transjordan tribes. The Transjordan tribes were already given this, And this was a little bit of an issue of disagreement with Moses because they had said, listen, we don't want to have inheritance on the other side of the Jordan River. We like it right here. We're responsible for winning this land after all, and it works really well for our animals and our livestock. Give us this land. And Moses did with one exception, so long as when the time came for they to cross the Jordan, that they would do so, even though they already had essentially their Christmas presents, they already had their inheritance, that they would be there to fight alongside their brothers. And so, those tribes—they've already received it. Those tribes, those Trans Jordan tribes, the two and a half tribes—they've already received it. And for some of you who that's still unfamiliar, you may remember, Father Abraham—he had many sons. Isaac was one of them. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons. And of course, at the center of those sons was. The boy Joseph, the man with the coat of many colors, the man who was sold into Egyptian slavery, who rose to the ranks to become number two in all of Egypt. And it was Joseph who received a double blessing. So you're like, I knew there was 12 tribes of Israel. But there is yet no tribe named Joseph, and that's because he received a double blessing, and rather his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would be part of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have 12, you take away Joseph, you're at 11. You add Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons, you go from 11 to 13. And of course, spoiler alert, as we'll see, the tribe of Levi does not receive a territorial allowance. Now we're back to 12. And as we said, during the time of Moses, two and a half of those tribes already received their inheritance, but of course, Back to the verse, please. The issue of Manasseh is a strange one. This was one of Joseph's sons. It was one of the major tribes in the north. And not only would these tribes have, there would be sometimes territorial disputes, but even within the tribes, there would be clan divisions. And there is certainly a little bit of ambiguity, but as best as we can tell, that's part of the issue why there is an east and a west Manasseh. Because of clan divisions that have ultimately kind of broken that apart lying on each side of the Jordan River. And so there's the reference in verse 7. For the nine and a half tribes who haven't received their inheritance, you got to set them up. And so that's exactly what he is going to do. He's going, throughout these next series of chapters, he is going to give them their inheritance. Ephraim, Manasseh, Judah, Zebulun, Simeon, Benjamin... Naphtali, Asher, Dan, and on and on. It's a joyous occasion. It's not a boring occasion. It's a joyous one. One they would have been very excited about. But then here we're introduced with a problem in verse 13. Verse 13 of Joshua
1: Yet the people
0: of Israel did not drive out the Gesherites or the Maccathites, but Gesher and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Chapter 13, verse 1 has already painted this picture that despite the general complete picture of victory in the land, there's still much territory to be taken. And then we come to verse 13 and we see that despite everything that's happened, Israel has not wholeheartedly obeyed God. They haven't wholeheartedly obeyed God. They failed to drive the people out of the land. And the issue here that we're going to see, the failure to drive these people from the land will will create consequences for Israel that will follow them for quite a while. All the way to the time of King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, 3, we find out that King David's son, Absalom, his rebellious and wicked son, was born of a Geshurite princess. In 2 Samuel 3, 3, and in 2 Samuel 13 and 14, Absalom took refuge in these cities, cities that should not have been there for him to take refuge, and yet he is going to because they did not wholeheartedly obey God, because they did not drive the people from land. A lot of application here. When God says to do something, do it, make it happen. Not, I'm going to do it 95% of the time. No, like, like do it, like do it God's way. As the church finds itself in 2018 in the midst of the sexual revolution. Man, I see a lot of application here. A sexual revolution that has not simply stopped at the doors of the church, but has entered in through and affected its people within. But not in Lynchburg or at Liberty, because that doesn't happen. Some of you, uh, um, you may have, the last week or two, you got a door hanger on your, we we went and hung 500 door hangers. And uh, we added, I think, an extra 300 little business cards on people's windows, invite people, because people in the city, they need the Lord. People that you're in class with, they need the Lord. And yet, these are some of the same people who say, Oh, I'm a Christian. Really? Makes me think of Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. I specifically told the the gentleman hanging the door hangers, I said, I want to make sure that you go... I told him, I said, I want to make sure you go up to the, the view at Oasis on Candler's Mountain Road. I've heard a lot of crazy things. And so I said, for all intents and purposes, that will be our land of Canaan. But I I figured, what a merciful thing, instead of slaughtering them, to invite them to, to bow the knee to the king. He laughed, as some of you have. And then three hours later, he sends me a picture. And he said, you weren't joking. And it was just condoms lying on the ground out in the parking lot. They failed to wholeheartedly obey God. They failed to drive the people from the land. And in many ways, this is a problem that we have when it comes to our obedience of God. And I I can't think of probably a more practical one than the one, as I mentioned earlier, that we find ourselves in the midst of this sexual revolution in 2018 of people who profess to be Christians and yet do not live like it. I have conversations with some of the most well-intentioned people and then I hear responses like, "Well, it's okay that you know, we're we're messing around." Really? Yeah, cuz you know, we love each other. Nope, not no not okay. Or it's okay because we're married in our hearts. Nope, you're not. Or <laughs> <sighs> well, we're engaged. Nope, doesn't count either. Oh, we're going to get married. Yeah, still hard no on that. I had one guy tell me, the temptation is too strong. We're just going to be having sex. I know you disapprove, but I've worked things out with God. I wish I was making this stuff up. God understands. So he told me. If only... And then I think the other problem that we run into in these situations is people We feel because we don't necessarily experience consequences That somehow we've gotten away with whatever it is that we're doing that we shouldn't be doing Right, oh, well, you know, nothing's actually happened, you know, she's not pregnant, so, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter Mark Driscoll talks about if You don't know Mark Driscoll is pastor of Trinity Church in, in Arizona and I really appreciate his vulnerability that he has. He, he, he talks about before he and his wife Grace were married, they were incredibly prom- promiscuous in their relationship, and then when they got married, they didn't have any children out of wedlock. But when they got married, they begin to see and all these cracks in their relationship begin to manifest themselves, finding satisfaction. In their new marital intimacy became incredibly difficult for them. For, he says, the first 10 years of our marriage, we found it very difficult to enjoy and find satisfaction in marital intimacy. Not to mention all the issues of trust and distrust that it created in our relationship. Here's where I'm going. My point is, is oftentimes we, we, we get off the reservation Okay, We're we're not living, we're not obeying the way God wants us to, and then we're foolish to think because we haven't experienced consequences that, well, somehow we've gotten away with it. Somehow we're off the hook. And yet, for the people here, they will experience the consequences of failing to obey God, to fully obey God, years and years and years down the road. That's where I'm going with that, right? I'm making a practical application. I got it. It's not talking about sexual sin here, okay? But what it's talking about is wholeheartedly following God and the failure when that happens or doesn't happen and how those consequences will follow you and can follow you for years and years and years. During the time of King David, his rebellious son Absalom will go and take refuge in these cities that should not even be there. That's where I'm going. That's why it's important. If God says, do it this way, do it this way. Whatever this is, okay? Whether it's sexual sin, whether it's something else. And, and don't be so foolish to think, because maybe I haven't experienced any immediate consequences, that that means I've, I've just slid into home. I, I've made it, right? Well, that is the failure of the people here, the wholeheartedly obey God and unfortunately it is often the failure of us, his covenant people today to wholeheartedly obey God and and do what he has instructed us to do because guys it's hard it's hard well as I mentioned this is a joyous occasion joyous occasion and the people are getting their allotment of land with one exception The people of Levi. The Levites, they don't get an allotment. This is what it says in verse 14 of chapter 13. To the tribe of Levi. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire. To the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. And then he goes on in verse thirty three of this same chapter and he says but to the tribe of levi moses gave no inheritance the lord god of israel is their inheritance just as he said to them now there's a few reasons why this is so understand that levi they will get no territorial allotment now they will get cities they will be given cities and we find that out i think in chapter 21 of joshua they are given cities and those cities are scattered throughout all the territories throughout all these kind of like states And part of that reason goes all the way back to Levi himself, the father of the tribe of Levi, for some really nasty stuff and just brutal, savage-type behavior that he displayed. Part of that, that, you can almost say, we see consequences. Why do they not get any allotment? Well, part of that comes from issues where he was not living in accordance with God's law, But the other part of that, of course, and I know many of you probably know, is because the Levites were the priests. Now understand this, that just because you were a Levite didn't guarantee that you were a priest. However, everyone who was a priest was from the tribe of Levi. Got that? So, you're from the tribe of Levi, maybe you're a priest, maybe not, but all priests are from the tribe of Levi. And God had purpose, and by design... That when the people would come and bring offerings to God Not only would it be an act of worship on the part of the people When they would bring grain offerings or animal offerings But by design the priest would be able to keep some of those In certain offerings to provide for themselves So we see the two designs of God's plan People come, they bring offerings And understand this is a very agricultural world so this is this is the same as dollars and cents for, for this conversation. They'd come, they'd bring their offerings, some of it would be consumed on the altar, and in some occasions it would be given to the priest. And they could eat that, right? And they could enjoy that. And this was part of God's plan. Part of God's plan that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.13 continues this line of thinking from the principles that we see in this passage here and in first corinthians chapter 9 13 the apostle paul while addressing the corinthian believer says do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple did you know that the guys who work in the temple they get their food from the temple when people bring offerings and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded, like Jesus says this, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And ultimately, he connects what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 9 by showing his Corinthian readers that it has roots in God's earliest instructions for his people, specifically here with the Levitical priest. This is where it gets usually uncomfortable because no one wants to hear a pastor talk about money. You know why? Because we don't like it when people mess with our idols. That's why. Whether it's sexual sin, (laughs) you don't go there, pastor. Whether it's money, no, you're not talking about that. Because we don't like it when people mess with our idols. I got it lined up just the way I want it. Paul goes there, so I guess it's okay if I go there. (laughs) And he does. And and I think some of this, certainly, there is uh, within the church we've seen abuses, okay? Because we're like, well, what are we doing anyways, okay? If you're trying to make this connection, then help me understand it. Help me understand the connection that you're you're making. Well, Paul continues this line of thinking in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, he says, Let the elders, this word is synonymous with bishops, overseers, pastors, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So this is what Paul is saying. In Israelite law, you could not muzzle the ox. Imagine an ox, and I have a very limited agricultural background. Imagine an ox. It's got that thing on the ox. It's towing something through the field. That's how it usually works. And you couldn't muzzle the ox. So that any time the ox could lean down and eat from the ground. Take a lunch break. Anytime the ox could lean down, take a sip of water, like I I frequently do because I'm talking so much. Okay, That was the law. And so Paul says, if we would treat an ox like this, and we wouldn't muzzle it from being able to enjoy the fruit of its own labor, why would we do the same thing to our pastors and our elders and those who labor in the gospel? Hashtag pay your pastors. That's, That's what he's saying here. Right? If we treat the ox this way, but we, we we're gonna we're gonna muzzle the pastor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching, that's where he's going. And of course, all of this, he's deriving this where it has its roots in those principles that we're dealing with here in Joshua 13 with the Levitical priest and how God had prescribed it for the people as an act of worship to bring their offerings and for that to be an act of worship and an act of faith and also for the priest to be able to enjoy some of those offerings. But there's a lot of confusion when it comes to paying pastors because you see articles in the news I feel like every year we see an article right? So and so asking congregation for 60 million dollars to buy a new private jet already owns a private jet just wants to upgrade all the reasons you can see here none of them really matter and then we're like yeah i don't like how that sounds can you have 60 million dollars to buy a new private jet no you can't you shouldn't so then what well, then we have to deal with other misconceptions. Like, guys, why would we pay a pastor who only works one day a week? Right? Pastors only work one day a week. Maybe, I mean, what? I'm up here for 45 minutes? Maybe. I don't know, you round up to an hour? Some of you are smiling. Some of you are chuckling. Some of you are like, why are people smiling and chuckling? I don't know. What are we doing? Why, why do we do this, right? Why do we do this? And part of the problem, I think, the church in America has created. This Disneyland bubblegum version of Christianity that we've created with our celebrity pastors, right? So we come on Sunday, you see them up on stage, and that's it, right? You see them up on stage, and then you come and you repeat. You do it all over again the next week. We, that's, that's the day, that's the era we live in with our celebrity pastors. And so it seems to us that, well, we only see them one or two hours a week. What, what are we really paying them for? Yes, I understand that we should, but what are we paying them to do? Because we like that. We like the celebrity pastors. We like the mega churches Because we can come in. We can hide. We can warm a pew. We can keep everyone at an arm's distance. And then we can leave. And we cannot connect to anyone. We cannot talk to anyone. We can just go and live our own isolated life for the rest of the week, simply checking that box so we can tell mom or grandma that, yes, we went to church, even though the only people who go to church are non-Christians in the first place. We need to explain these things to people. People don't know. I didn't know. I always wondered that. He only works one day a week. I mean, there's a, a well-known church in Lynchburg. Not going to say it. Don't bother asking me. I've asked many times over the last couple of years if I could meet with the pastor, call the receptionist, email the receptionist, just get passed off to somebody else. And I figured if that's happening to me as another pastor in Lynchburg, I imagine that none of this peop- none of this person's people are able to see him either. Teaching and preaching is certainly important, but that's not all pastors are supposed to be doing. And yet, to a certain degree, I'd say we've created this monster because we like our celebrity pastors, and we like our mega churches. And, and let me say that just because someone's a celebrity pastor doesn't mean that that's they're, they're bad, or if it's a mega church, it's it's bad. I hope it doesn't seem like I'm trying, I'm putting that down. Okay. Usually, those larger churches have the ability to have other pastors. But my point is, is that we don't want that. We don't want to have the the intimacy. We don't want to have the accountability. We don't want to have anyone that we have to submit to because we want to be our own little king. And these are some of the issues that we are dealing with. So, yes, he's saying here, pay your pastors. Pay your pastors. Mark Dever talks about this. He says, pastors, if you use... The time for your sermon preparation every single week to hide out and not to interact with your people. Not only will you be fired, you should be fired. And many pastors today, that's it, right? They want to come up here and then peace out through the back door. And that's it. That's not what we're called to do. We're not simply teaching and preaching. My job is to love the people that God has entrusted to me. And oh, by the way, I cannot love the people that God has entrusted to me if I don't know the people that God has entrusted to me. And I can't know them unless I live life boots on the ground, in the trenches, in the mud with them. So, all of these thoughts from 1 Corinthians 9, first from 1 Timothy 5, it finds its roots. Paul's instructions in those passages to the Corinthian believers ultimately find their roots in God's early instruction for his people that we see here in Joshua and it was to Israel's greatest shame in the story of Nehemiah in the 13th chapter that many of the priests were out having to work in the fields because God's people stopped bringing their offerings. It's a great embarrassment. It's a great shame to the people. No, this is God's plan. The Levites will not receive any territorial allowance. They will be embedded throughout the cities. They will be carrying out priestly functions. They will be pointing people toward me. And I have prescribed that the people will bring offerings as an act of faith and obedience and trust and worship. And the priest will be able to enjoy some of those offerings that they might be provided for. And of course, once again, let me remind you, this is a joyous occasion. The people are excited. The people are happy. The people have been looking forward to this day. And so the next series of chapters, he's going to addressing different tribes, talking about their their real estate. What are they going to get? With one unique difference, with one unique, with one exception, I guess, to this. Throughout the whole next series of chapters, it's all about the different tribal inheritance. And then, in chapter 14, we see an inheritance given to a specific individual, which I thought was quite interesting. And his name is Caleb. It says, in chapter 14, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know. What the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me, I was 40 years old at that time. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me, they made the heart of the people melt. Yet, notice what it says, I holy followed the Lord my God. Verse 9, And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. Because, notice what it says, You have wholly followed the Lord my God. You seen a pattern? 10, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years, since the time the lord spoke this word to moses while i while israel walked in the wilderness and now behold i am this day 85 years old so we have a little bit of a chronological timeline established caleb was 40 when he went out on this reconnaissance mission to spy out the land Caleb came back with Joshua. They gave a favorable report. The other spies didn't. The other spies scared the people, caused their hearts to melt, and it was for that lack of faith of the people that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, plus five years, which indicates that this conquest, this campaign in the book of Joshua, has taken at least five years. Caleb is now 85 years old. And I love what he says. Notice verse 11. "'I am,' this is an 85-year-old guy talking, "'I am still as strong today "'as I was in the day that Moses sent me. "'My strength now is as my strength was then, "'for war and for going and coming. "'So now give me this hill country "'of which the Lord spoke on that day. "'For you heard on that day "'how the Anakim were there "'with great fortified cities. "'It may be that the Lord will be with me. "'I shall drive them out just as the Lord said.' Joshua thinks, then responds. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. If you're seeing a contrast between Caleb and the people in 1313 who failed to fully drive out their enemies, who failed to wholly, wholeheartedly obey God, that's good. That's what I want you to see here. Contrast. Think about Caleb and his story. I love, I love this, this section about Caleb. Here's an 85-year-old guy saying, I still got it, right? I still go down there and kick their butts. That's Caleb. I love Caleb, how, how he's depicted in his story. And he, he, he gives us a quick little flashback when he was a young man. And you, and you see the faith that he has. He comes back with Joshua. He gives a good report. The other people, they said, oh, yes, it's a, it's a great land flowing with milk and honey. However, we can't do anything about it. We're like grasshoppers to them. They are giants. They're just too big. It's, they're, they're too big. We're too small. We can't do it. Did Joshua and Caleb go on the same recon mission? They, they would have seen the same things. They would have seen the same things, the same sights, heard the same things as the other spies. And their report is totally different. I don't think it's an issue that for Caleb and Joshua, they're just ignorant to the fact that there's giants in this land. And that this is going to be Hard. But the difference is, for Caleb, he sees his God as bigger than these challenges or problems. Yes, they're big. Yes, they've got fortified cities. But that's okay because we have God. We have God. And so you see his faith right there is a 40-year-old man in the flashback, boom, wholeheartedly obeying God. And then you see it even today. Notice what he says. He asked for his inheritance. There are people living in the land that he's asking for an inheritance for. He could have said, yeah, give me that, uh, that land over there. Yeah, because we already beat those guys over there, right? Oh, we did? Yeah, I want that. That's, I can just move. That's, like move. that's a move-in ready house right there. I'll take that. He doesn't ask for that. He says, Joshua, give me that land, right? Now, there's still guys living there. And oh, by the way, when people are living um, and you try to take something that belongs to them, they don't like it, okay? Think challenge, think obstacle, think problem. And what does Caleb say? He says, give me that land. I'm 85. I'll go take care of business. I'll give him a lickin', right? Boom! Wholeheartedly obeying God. Uh, not the easy option. Caleb could have taken the easy choice. He could have asked for other land. That would have been easier. Doesn't And boom, wholeheartedly obeying God, wholeheartedly believing God, wholeheartedly trusting God. Because I think for Caleb, he saw whatever challenge, whatever temptation, whatever obstacle, as big as it might be, as no problem because of the God that he was following. And you think of the people who failed to fully drive out the enemies in chapter 13. That's too hard. Or you think of my friend, Joe, I know you disagree with me, but it's just, he, he, he used the phrase, and I quote, it's too hard. The temptation in our relationship, it's, I know you disagree, it's just too hard, and this is how it's going to be. Easy option, easy choice, easy decision. Every time. Temptation's too great, give in to it. That's easy, right? feel God leading me in this direction. Uh, that's too hard. I'll, I'll take the easy decision, right? Things at church, things at church are hard. Ah, I'll leave, right? Easy decision. Like whatever it is, right? Easy choice, easy decision. And then we see Caleb. We see Caleb. An 85-year-old guy whose faith would put most of us to shame. You give me that and I'll go take him out. I'm 85. I don't care. I still got it. That's what he says. He tells Joshua, I still got it. I'll go do that. He wholeheartedly obeys God. Oh, that we might be like Caleb. That we might be like Caleb. Caleb. Who sees whatever temptation, whatever challenge, whatever problem, whatever obstacle as no problem. Yes, it might be hard. It might be difficult. But my God is bigger than any of those things. Any of them. That we might have faith like Caleb. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for us. These people in chapter 13... They failed to fully and wholeheartedly obey and believe God and drive their enemies from the land, and not only will those consequences linger with them for many, many years, but oh, by the way, they never fully received the promises of God. Spoiler alert. You heard of people called the Philistines? They shouldn't be there, but they are. They, they never actually are going to take all the land that God had said that they were going to give to them. So not only do they have consequences lingering with them for years and years and years, but the same people are not ever going to experience God's fullness of blessing and perfect plan for them because of their disobedience, because they keep taking that easy option. God, make us like Caleb. Help us to be like Caleb. Jesus, we need your help. We need your help, God. We need to see you, God, as Oh, I pray that you would increase our faith, that you would give us faith like Caleb, that we might wholeheartedly obey you in the face of temptation, in the face of your guidance and directing our lives. Lord, I pray that you would free us from idols in our life that we cling to, Lord, this cannot be done simply by sheer willpower alone. And so we need you, God. We need you to help us. Help us, God, to wholeheartedly obey and follow you. Give us faith, God, to trust what you say. That you're not just a good God who is for us, but you are a God that is more powerful than any obstacles or challenges or temptations that we may face. Make us like Caleb. Amen.